but people oftentimes separate them out to this is sex and this is relationships. And somewhere in, the, in this whole big spew, you've got God and you've got family and you've got all these other things, but sex is supposed to be taboo and not talked about because it's different. Well, the energy isn't different. It's just what we've been told is acceptable. And so if we feel shame about what we're creating sexually, then we feel shame about what we create everywhere else as well, because it's who we are. We create with who we are, our soul, our energy, our love. All of that is tied to sexuality. And it's not that sex is the thing, it's that it's all the thing. And it's all connected and it's all one. But somewhere along the line, we're told that they're separate. And so we feel shameful here. And then we're told, but be beautiful and love yourself. And you're a child of God and all these different things. And they're really the same. And the messages are confused. And so people don't know how to feel about themselves. And they don't know how to feel safety in relationships because they don't feel safety in themselves. This can't be it. There has to be more. Wait, am I crazy? No. If you're yearning for more and working hard to make your dreams a reality, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Dreamcatchers. It's the only show committed to helping you self-actualize and then transcend, leaving you with the legacy you've always desired. Listen in on conversations with successful philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and founders every week as we connect with them for inspiration, education, and direction. Your host, Jerome Myers, is here to help you exit the matrix and transform into a leader of your own revolution. The question is, do you believe your dreams should be real? Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Dreamcatchers podcast. I'm your host, Jerome, and I've got the pleasure of having Brooke in all the way from Utah in the Salt Lake City area. Brooke, how are you? I'm doing so well. Thank you. It's a new year and there's so much happening. It's it's wonderful. This is going to be a really thought-provoking episode for our listeners. So buckle up, buckaroos, because we're getting into the nitty-gritty. So, Brooke, what do you do? I am a sexual empowerment coach. <gasps> what? I know it's a sex. Oh, no. I know. And it's, you know, it's fun. There's a lot that I do, but there's so many different like there's a very wide range of what that means for people. And it starts with the boring, hard stuff that people don't really feel comfortable talking about a lot of the time. Like what kind of relationship do you have with yourself? And do you consider sexuality to be positive or negative? And have you gone through any trauma or cultural shaming or shame, 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 shame. And then once you get through all of that stuff, we get to the good stuff of, okay, well then how do I make my sex life better? And how do I, make my relationships better and my business better, my finances better. And you get through all of the garbage at the beginning and then it gets really good at the end. How does one become a sex coach? (laughs) (laughs) I get that question a lot. (laughs) And for me, it was a really long process. I started doing my own work because I really needed it. I found myself at the age of 29 with like zero healthy relationships in my life. And I had gone through a lot of trauma, about 23 years of sexual trauma growing up, which doesn't leave a whole lot of space in there for not trauma. (laughs) But at 29, and I assume if you need trigger warnings or stuff, you'll give them to people before we start. But I had been raped and it was the last incident of a very long string of it, of abuse, starting when I was seven at the hands of my former stepfather. And when this last thing happened, I took a really hard look at my life and I was like, what is happening? (laughs) Like At that point, I had moved away from my family. I moved to the like the northeast corner of Nebraska where no one would know me. There was like no way my past could follow me there. I left the religion that I had grown up in and I like did this hard reset on my whole life, I thought. And it turned out that just moving and restarting and trying to ignore everything that had happened wasn't actually healing me like I had hoped that it would. And so I stopped and looked at my life and was like, this isn't okay. After all of these different instances, like obviously like the things that happened to me 
I'm not responsible for other people's actions. But when I stopped and looked at my life, I realized that the only person that was going to change things was me. If I wanted to make different decisions, if I wanted to do things in a new way, if I wanted to have healthy relationships and stop picking the same type of person and stop recreating the same cycles because it was comfortable when I knew, that had to start with me. And learning how to become whole with myself was a really long process. And I realized that in the middle of it was my idea of who I was and the relationship that I had with myself. And when I went into like the science of the brain and all that, like I I nerded out, like I had to get really nerdy about it because I'm also on the autism spectrum. And so to figure out how to change things, I had to understand it first. And I, I came to this very mixed knowledge of our self-identity is first formed in our sacral chakra, where we are, our sexual energy. That's how we begin to understand ourselves. And because my energy had always been filled with trauma from the age of seven forward and shame and feeling like I wasn't worth anything, that is what I created in all of my external relationships. And so to change that, I had to get into it and do the work. Ooh. So I'm trying to figure out where to go first. <laughs> There's so much I just threw at you. I apologize. But that's no, how I don't apologize. It's amazing. Was and it's your- out for myself and then teaching other people how to do it. I, I went to my therapist one day and I was like, all right, I've done all of this work. Like this is like 10, like seven years into it. I've done all this work. And I was like, why is it? that when I re-engage in sexuality, it still brings up shame because I understand it. I've gone through the exercises. So why am I still getting that same output at the end? And my, my therapist, bless his heart, he was like, I don't know. <laughs> was like, what? what do you mean you don't know? He's like, you have done all the work and you do understand it and you should be able to create different outcomes. And it was then that I like reverted back to my college years of being performance major in school. I I played the tuba and I had practiced learning how to play the tuba a very specific way. And if I did something wrong and if I kept practicing it wrong, I was going to do it wrong. And so I'd have to go back and relearn it and do it right over and over and over. And if I screwed up, not be mad at myself, but just continue to repractice. And I realized that that's how the brain works. And so I had 23 years of knowledge that sex was bad. And in order to change that, I, I had to know it, but knowing doesn't change anything for us. Knowing is just the beginning. And so in order to really change it, I had to practice it differently. I had to re-engage in sexuality with myself, with a whole new understanding and make it positive and beautiful, make it connective to myself, make it connecting to God, because God gave us the gift of creation And so making it positive changed that relationship for me with God. It changed the relationship for me with myself. It changed the relationship with finances and with my family and everything. And I was like, whoa, so all I have to do is have really positive, healthy sex. (laughs) That's going to change my whole life. That's awesome. I can do that because it reprogrammed my entire story that I had about myself and who I was. And who other people were and what interactions should be like and what they should feel like and how God felt about me and how I was worthy of money. If you make love to money, it's going to flow right back into your life. And so it really changed everything, but it came down to repurposing those old experiences to be for my benefit instead of my harm and practicing in a really beautiful, positive way, very intentionally how to heal the sexual energy that I had inside of myself and heal all of my other relationships. Wow. Okay. There's like 82 places I want to go. First place (laughs) I'm going to go is the last point you made was heal my sexual energy. That's really, that's a really interesting phrase. And I know every word is intentionally chosen in that. And earlier you said something along the lines of we begin to understand ourselves through our sexual energy. So will you connect those two thoughts for me just so that the listeners get a clear understanding of this concept? Mm -hmm. So when we start to form our identity, right? 
as very small children, we start to form how we feel about ourselves and what we think about ourselves. If you, if you look at the chakras, you have your root chakra and the sacral chakra. Those are the first two. And that's where we understand ourselves, our surroundings around us, and what we are able to do. What we do is what we create in the world. And our source of creation, that, that gift of creative energy, is the same energy that we use for sexual creation. It all circulates around the same part of our mind, of our body, of our emotions, the, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. And it creates how we see ourselves. We start to explore our bodies. We start to explore how we connect to ourselves. We have this gift of creation for sex that is given to us for that purpose, but also to create so many other things around us. We create relationships with people. We create music. We create literature. We write. We explore. We do science. We do all these different things from this energy of curiosity and exploration. And it's all one and the same. But people oftentimes separate them out to this is sex and this is relationships. And somewhere in, in this whole big spew, you've got God and you've got family and you've got all these other things. But sex is supposed to be taboo and not talked about because it's different. Well, the energy isn't different. It's just what we've been told is acceptable. And so if we feel shame about what we're creating sexually, then we feel shame about what we create everywhere else as well, because it's who we are. We create with who we are, our soul, our energy, our love. All of that is tied to sexuality. And it's not that sex is the thing, it's that it's all the thing and it's all connected and it's all one. But somewhere along the line, we're told that they're separate. And so we feel shameful here. And then we're told, but be beautiful and love yourself. And you're a child of God and all these different things. And they're really the same. And the messages are confused. And so people don't know how to feel about themselves. And they don't know how to feel safety in relationships because they don't feel safety in themselves. Safety in yourself. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. So... And I think you'll you'll be able to expand on that concept when I take you back to kind of the beginning. So do you understand the origins of shame as it relates to sex? Because I have my ideas, but you're <laughs> the coach and the expert here. So I'd love to hear what you think. Yeah, the history of sex is fascinating. When I was in college, I picked up a book and I don't know what level of comfort your listeners have. So I'll be, it, it's the name. Go of, all the way. I mean, at the end of the day for the people <laughs> who need the healing, no, seriously, for the people who need the healing, they'll, they'll stay. And for the people who are scared of it or they don't need it, they'll go. But okay. I've, I've watched far too many people decide to repress this part of their life. Mm -hmm. for religious reasons, for being accepted socially and for whatever else. And they either repress it to the point where they don't like it or they repress it to the point where they're not being honest with themselves. And I think it's a disservice to everybody when they do it. Yeah. So the book that I picked up, it was called The C Word. It's, it's called Cunt. And I saw it on a shelf in Barnes & Noble in Provo, Utah, which is where BYU is. It's like the most Mormon town. And I see this book and it's, it's beautiful. It's like a little square book and it has a giant flower on the front of it. It's bright. And it just says cunt right across the top of it. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> like, I need, I don't know what this is, but I need it. And I picked it up and I started reading it. And it's the most beautiful exploration of where that word originally came from, the power that it originally held, it was reserved solely for the queen mother and her power of bringing life to the country and her responsibility and duty and, and this beautiful reverence for the queen mother and what she was giving to the world by having children, which is hard, especially way back in medieval times, it was really a big risk. And that power 
that source became very threatening because suddenly it was in her hands whether or not the country was going to go on. And that became very difficult for men to process and deal with. And, and slowly, when fear came into relationships, which really is the source of shame, right? Respect and love and equality shifted away and out of relationships. And so in order to satisfy fear, we introduced shame into how things could be. And it started well before medieval times. But the idea of shame and sexuality has really shifted into it out of a source of control to either not be hurt by your partner or to control a country or a people or to make sure that things are being done in a very specific way. <laughs> I was just reading that in the year 1000, forks like that you eat with were shamed by the Catholic church. Like they were told not to use, because it was a new utensil and they were like, we are not in support of forks. They are anti like God and all these different things. And it's just like the most bizarre things can carry shame around them. And when I think about the Catholic church being against forking, I think that's really funny. <laughs> but it really, any movement, any progression introduces a level of, of fear, loss of control. And so when people started farming and the agricultural movement took place in the world as a whole, sexuality shifted and changed because then people needed a way to know who the land was going to go to, whose son was whose. There used to be a very communal <laughs> reality and feeling around sexuality. There were some places where you'd have a tribe of people and all the men would sleep with the woman on their marriage night in a very open and welcome way so that the whole community would have fathership to the child that was born so that it wasn't one person's responsibility, it was everyone's responsibility. And so sexuality started shifting when agricultural became a thing and people needed to know who was my land going to and who was responsible and who was going to take care of things. And that's when a lot of Christianity started to take form in a new way and new ideas of what sexuality meant and what was acceptable and wasn't. So there's a, there's a very long, very interesting history to sexuality, but what it comes down to is this idea of control and fear and, and making sure that people feel less likely to be hurt, which is impossible, right? <laughs> Everyone's going to feel pain and hurt in their life. Even if you have the best marriage and the best relationship and only one partner, one of you is going to die and leave this life. So All relationships end at yeah. some point. Everything is through death. Life. And and shame is a way of trying to avoid pain. Oh. And keep control of people. Yeah. So I was all the way in on the control thing. I, I never connected the dots on shame as a way to avoid or reduce pain. I've always only seen it used to get people to behave in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Because if they didn't, then they would be unworthy or insert whatever nasty mean word you want to put in dirty etc so when people come to you and they are challenged with their relationship with their self because i think that's what we're reducing sexuality to is mm -hmm. being in a solid relationship with yourself what technique or kind of how do you open it up so that they can reframe it? Because the the brilliance of you talking about changing your story had so much more impact on your healing than changing your environment is so amazing. Yeah. Because I hear fairly regularly, especially when ladies are in between, specifically ladies, I, I don't hear, I don't know if guys are that introspective, at least not the guys I spend a lot of time <laughs> with, right? They're like, they do one or two things when they need a change. They cut their hair off or they move. 
halfway across the country or all the way across the country <laughs> because they want something different. But you're saying, yeah, I did that too, but that wasn't the real transformation. The transformation for me was making, giving the stories that I had, the events that happened in my life a different. So is that how you start when you engage with folks? You understand their story and then start reframing? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you were just recently at our mastermind. It's all about stories and the stories we tell ourselves and the stories we use for other people. And that's um, the reason why Chip and I like came together the way that we did when we started seeing each other, but we were drawn to each other because of this, this need of understanding stories and helping other people to do the same thing. And that's really where I open it up for people is I go back to that analogy of playing music or playing sports. Like most people either come from arts or sports, one of the two. And if you can relate it to dribbling a basketball, right? If you learn to dribble a basketball wrong, you can get so far, but then you have to go back and actually learn the proper techniques to, if you want to excel, right? If you want to be able to play on a team and pass the ball and be effective at, at protecting where you're going and whatever position you have, you have to know your technique for that, that position to be able to be a part of the team. And the brain is going to give us outcomes that it has learned. And so helping people understand that if they want a different outcome, when people come to me, they're frustrated or they're sad or their relationship is about to be over and they don't know what to do. And I look at them and I say, do you really want a different outcome? Because if you want a different outcome, then you have to do things differently. Otherwise, it's going to stay the same. And you can't just do it differently once. You have to relearn it and retrain yourself and repractice it. And the way to retrain our brain is by going to those old stories and changing them. Not changing the details, not changing or pretending like they didn't happen, but changing why they happened, repurposing them. So I was no longer the victim of someone who started abusing me at the age of seven. I was a 32-year-old about to have a baby who was the most important thing to me in the world, who had lived through hell and still believed in people and still loved the person who hurt me. I was not someone who had been destroyed by what happened to me. I was resilient and strong and caring. I came out of it the other side with more empathy for people who do really horrible things. I was someone who learned to love the person and see that love is an action and not a feeling. I was someone who has learned that you can move on and create boundaries without killing love in your life. And it empowered me and it made me stronger and it made me an incredible mother. And that's who I was. I wasn't someone who had just been abused for 23 years. I was an incredible human because of the things that I had lived through. Wow. So everything that tried to kill you failed and it made you stronger. You're the first person I've ever heard say that you had empathy for the perpetrator. I've never heard anybody say that before. And it's, hard. it's hard to say it. But there's a level of forgiveness that has to exist in order for you to move forward, right? Because you can't reframe the story if you're still waiting for, you know, it, reconciliation or whatever uh, punishment this person is going to get for doing what they did. Yes. So... Is this part of the work that you did in therapy or is this something else? Because at some point you're like, go ahead. Oh, so what, what ended up happening is my therapist, he's still my mentor. I still see him. He's the person that I created my program with because he has his doctorate and master's degree in family psychology. And he's, he's amazing. He's brilliant. But when we started working together, we opened up this new idea of using the body to reprogram the body, right? I had to go back into these past exercises, these past memories and experience them differently, both emotionally and physically or emotionally and intellectually, but also physically. 
And so using my body, having healthy, beautiful, positive orgasms made sex safe again for me. And it allowed me to understand those past experiences. But then I would have a practice of sexual meditation to reprogram my mind into being safe in sex, into learning sex a new way, into spending time with myself and my own body, understanding what are my triggers? What are the things that, because there's still stuff that comes up for me. That's a lot of trauma, (laughs) but I now get to understand myself and explore my own body enough that I'm comfortable and safe. And I know what works for me and I know what's healthy and I know what's comfortable so that when I'm with my partner, I now get to have beautiful, healthy, comfortable, explorative, fun, sexy experiences with him that also feel safe. And so going into those, those moments, it was, this was all the explorative process that I went through starting at the age of, of 30, between 30 and 32 is when I really started doing the work was I knew I needed to have different experiences. Like I said, I was going to have a daughter and I refused to bring a girl into this world where sex was only trauma. And so I was very motivated (laughs) to figure it out. And so I did part of it in therapy, but, but figuring out the program and figuring out how to help other people go back to old experiences, both emotionally and intellectually, but also go back and revisit them and then experience and explore your body and what's happening, what's coming up in your body and transmuting that, like letting the energy go and then having orgasm after to create safety and space and reprogram and heal the mind to give a different output. Now, I shouldn't ask questions I don't know the answer to or know if you know the answer to, but I'm super curious, right? So when folks repress the sexual energy, they rob themselves of all of the chemical releases that come with orgasm, right? right? And that impacts their mental health and, you know, in some regards, their physical health. Do you have any thoughts that kind of solidify that opinion that I have and make it like more scientific other than two people just throwing (laughs) opinions around? Yeah. um, So there's, there's a lot of science on the subject. Uh, If someone is interested in going into the science of the mind, and sexuality, there's a great book by Emily, I'd have to look up her last name, it's called Come As You Are, and it's a deep exploration of the science of sexuality, and it's really, really fascinating, but it is true, there's different releases in the mind, there's different chemicals, there's, like I, I mentioned earlier, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system controls how we react to the world around us, right? But there's also sexual controls within those two nervous systems that allow you to know whether or not you are safe to engage in sexuality, both emotionally and physically, but like, so the the sympathetic, it might be confusing these two. I should have written this part down, but the sympathetic nervous system is the control for getting turned on. People often refer to it as like, oh, I'm so turned on, but that's really more of like a gas pedal in a car. And the parasympathetic is more of a brake. And you have, just like in a car, your emergency brake and your foot brake. And the one system is constantly scanning to see, okay, do I feel safe with the person that I'm with? Are they, are they attractive to me? Is this someone that I like? And then I yada, yada, yada. Well, then you have your brake that is constantly scanning to see, okay, well, am I in an environment that is safe to get turned on? And if not, I'm going to hit the break. Am I at Thanksgiving dinner with grandma and I shouldn't be getting turned on right now? That's a good time for that break to engage. (laughs) And then the other one is a break for, am I ready to like step on the gas and get turned on? Or do I need a different partner? Or is there something in this environment that doesn't feel safe around me? So there's, there's these three different systems that are playing into each other constantly, letting us know whether or not we are in a setting that feels good to go. For me personally, I have a really sensitive gas. (laughs) I get turned on. I'm ready to go really fast. And I think that's part of what led me into doing this work is that it was important for me to understand why I was that way, because it 
was beautiful and I wanted it to be beautiful. Other people have a really like desensitized gas. It takes a lot to get them revved up and going and their break is really sensitive and they're ready to say no at any minute. <laughs> like, nope, I'm not safe. Nothing's working here for me. But when you understand what those measures are inside of yourself and also your partner, then you get to create what Emily refers to as context. You get to have the context around you that feels good to both people. And suddenly you have a partner who may have a really slow gas that you have to have a lot of like compliments and touching of their arms and their shoulders and get them feeling really safe and comfortable and seen and heard to get them to want to be turned on. And if that's not the same for you, then you're going to go into it headstrong and be like, hey, close off, let's go. <laughs> Everyone's ready. And they're like, no, 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 I'm not ready. <laughs> Because instead of doing everything that hits their brake harder, you start doing the things that hits their gas and lets their brake off. And then both of you feel safe. And then you get to go. <laughs> you get a lot of orgasms at the end. And it's wonderful. <laughs> a lot of people want to unlock their ultimate potential, but lack the strategy, support, and stamina necessary to achieve their major goals. They often try to overcome these challenges by trying to do it on their own, causing frustration, fatigue, and eventually failure. We have developed a model for a center life, aka the red pill, to help them bolster their beliefs, gain clarity on their path to success, and provide accountability as they take action on their goals. When they take the red pill, they rapidly accelerate attainment of their goals and begin to experience a life of significance and impact. Want to find out more? Hop over to JeromeMyers.co. Now, let's get back to the episode. It's wonderful. <laughs> so, it's interesting. We, we've went a couple of different places, but we still seem to circle around the same point. And you said it earlier. It's about safety. Mm-hmm. And if I go up to shame and then I come back to acceptability or appropriateness, which is what you were just talking about, right? I use these systems to determine whether or not it's appropriate for me to do this in this place with this person at this time Yeah. versus not. But if I've got some shame sprinkled in, if I've got a story about it, then it will change my behavior. Right. Right. And in, fact you you won't do us natural and so you become kind of desensitized to i i think you would i I don't know that this is scientifically based but you become desensitized to the things that would turn you on because you can't focus on that because of all the other things right and that's where i go back to shame being more than just about control and really being about fear People are afraid of being hurt. And so they try to control their environment. And when we can show people that they are safe, one within themselves, so it doesn't really matter what anyone else thinks, but two, safe with the partner that they have chosen to be vulnerable with and and show parts of themselves to, then shame has zero control anymore. When you get the fear out of it, we, we hold on to shame because we're afraid. We're afraid of being rejected. We're afraid of being judged. We're afraid of being hurt by the other person. And so if I can live in shame, which I really knew how to live in shame, like it was comfortable there for me. Like it was really, really good. And it still comes up a lot for me. I have to like, and consciously be like, no, <laughs> this isn't happening today. I'm not that person and I'm going to give myself like we can't shame our feelings. We have to explore them and let them flow through us and, and give them things. But if we can show our brain, right, I'm living a life of safety. I've intentionally built this life of safety for myself. I know that the pieces that are around me, 
I can't control whether or not I'm going to get hurt, but I can control the people who I have in my life. I can control how I feel about myself. So all of a sudden, these fear points that are constantly storming our brain, I call them trauma soldiers. They're constantly marching around our brain, keeping us safe. They're fighting off. They're going to win the war. They're going to check every piece of information that's coming into our mind. Consciously, we take in seven pieces of information every second. Subconsciously, we take in up to 1,500 pieces of information every second. So these trauma soldiers are taking in all that information that we're not thinking about. And they're like, you're not safe. and You're not safe. and You're not safe. Get out of here. But the problem is that they're based on all of these old things that have happened to us in our past. They're scanning for all the things that have hurt us before to keep us away from the things that could hurt us going forward. And that is at the center of fear and at the center of shame. Everything that has hurt us before has caused us to say, oh, okay, well, if I have to accept that someone else hurt me, that feels really uncontrollable because anyone else could then come up and hurt me. So instead of believing that I was hurt by a grown man who's supposed to be my father, I'm going to say I'm a shitty human being who doesn't deserve to be treated well because then I can keep myself in that place. And then it's about me and I can control that. And so that shame is better than accepting that a man that I love and gave my whole heart to at the age of seven was just dealing with things that were bigger than him. But it keeps me in shame. And so that shame forms control. And in a way, he used that shame as control because he needed to not be found out because he was so afraid of being rejected and unloved if people knew what he had done and who he was. So it all comes down to this fear of being rejected and not being loved and being hurt. And and that is what is at the center of shame. When we can tell those trauma soldiers, thank you. Thank you for protecting me. Thank you for helping me survive. You did your job. That is what I needed to do. There is no shame around surviving. Thank you. You can rest now. You've done your job. And now I'm going to do something new. I'm going to create new space for safety. I'm going to let the shame go because it's not real control. It's only fake control. And I'm going to choose new patterns and new safety. And again, it's going back to those old experiences and saying, thank you. (laughs) I see what you did there. Thank you for getting me through them. I am no longer that person. I'm a better person for it. And I wasn't a victim. I am a survivor and I am a thriver and I do all these other things. And you, you take shame, you, you tear it out at its roots and it doesn't have any place anymore. So how do you know you actually got the root, right? When I, when I'm pulling weeds out of the flower bed, I know I got the root cause I can see the thing. Yeah. But when you're getting rid of shame, how do, how do you know that you got to the root of it? Mm, it's much harder. <laughs> It's much, much harder. I teach a process of self-compassion to everyone that I work with. And it's, the short answer is when you can have compassion for your feelings and allow them to be whatever they are without giving them value, then you know that you have gotten to the root of it. If I have a feeling come up and I go, oh my God, I shouldn't feel that way. I shouldn't be acting this way. I, that's a horrible thing for me to be. Then I'm still living in shame, right? If I can have a feeling come up with, I'll just, like for me and Chip, if, if something comes up between us and I get upset and I look at that feeling and I go, oh, what inside of me got upset? What am I afraid of? What is it that I, do I feel unseen? Do I feel unimportant? And where is that coming from? Is that coming from my past? Is that coming from something in our relationship that we need to address? Is it something? And and instead of saying, I'm a horrible person, I shouldn't feel that way. I'm worth nothing. That's all shame. 
if I go into it with what do I have to learn in this moment? What is this feeling trying to teach me? Then I know I've gotten to the root of it because feelings happen. (laughs) They just happen. And they come from the past and they come from the present and they come from fear of the future. They come from all sorts of things. And if instead of shaming those feelings, we can learn from them and let them go and have compassion for ourselves and say, wow, I'm really grateful that my mind chose this opportunity to take me even deeper, to teach me even more, to show me something new from experiences that I thought I had learned from already. Because we can't take the experiences out of our life. But instead of creating shame about why I'm not a better person, I go into what is it that I, what is the opportunity in front of me? Then I'm out of shame and moving into the future. Out of shame and moving into the future. What a beautiful state. Wow. So (laughs) I want to come back to control because you said something I don't know, maybe five minutes ago, maybe a little bit longer, that really perked up my ears. You were talking about the story that you told yourself so that you would be in control. Because, you know, if the story was somebody else hurt me and anybody can come up and hurt me, then I'm totally out of control and I'm completely vulnerable. But if I tell myself the story, like I deserve this because of who I am, then I'm in control. Why would, and I I don't think that's uncommon at all, but why do people, is it simply so they can feel like they're in control? Mm -hmm. Is that how they get to safe? I'm in control. So I'm safe. Is that what we're doing when we do that? At a very like basic level. Yes. That's how the brain works. Is it wants to control safety? So the best way to do that is by creating false control, fake control. It is a much harder leap for people at a young age, right? To say, it's okay if I get hurt again, I'm going to live in love. That's a hard, that's a pretty, you got to take quite a few steps to get there in your life of saying, it's okay. It's okay that someone else could hurt me because I'm going to love anyways and I'm going to live my life and I'm going to accept that most people aren't going to hurt me and I'm going to be aware of the relationships that I have. That's that's much higher level. At a very young age, when, when we're children and we're crying and we cry and we think, is my mom going to come and pick me up and give me food? That's There's not a whole lot of cognitive thinking that's happening there. We're learning responses. There's a really beautiful book by Oprah that came out called What Happened to You? And it's this like 20-year exploration into the science of the stuff that I figured out with my therapist. And now I'm going back and I, I just recently read it and I was like, oh my God, I'm so glad someone has done the science behind all the things that I decided was true. <laughs> because my therapist and I, like, I went through a lot of processes and I read and studied the brain a lot but I didn't have a lab and the resources to actually do all of this sociological research and studies and figure out what happened. And and this book really explains that when we are very, very young, if you go through trauma between the ages of zero and three, and then no more trauma for the rest of your life, you will be more damaged than someone who goes through trauma from the age of three to 25 constantly without stop because it the brain is learning so much at such a young age that that's how it formed its reactions for the rest of your life and so being able to instead of asking people what's wrong with you ask them the question what happened to you let's understand what happened so we can create a new safety And we can create a new space because the brain has to learn how to control what's around us at a really infantile age to protect itself. And so learning false control over what's happening to us, like, okay, well, I can't control the grownups around me. If I can't get anyone to take care of my, my 
basic needs for love and connection and food and, and physical safety, well, then I am going to control the only thing that I can, and that is me and how I feel about myself. So even if I decide all this is happening because I'm a really shitty person, so I'm going to believe that I deserve it all because that makes me feel safer. It's still really hard to change that belief because you're like, okay, well, if this is safe, if this is what I know, then I'm just going to keep believing that I'm a shitty person so that as bad things continue to happen to me, since I've never learned how to make good things happen, it's going to be okay that bad things are happening because I deserve it. Ooh. (laughs) Okay. So what, what are people depriving the folks that they love most when they decide that they're just going to stay in their little bubble of control? Yeah. Real connection. If you don't have a real relationship with yourself, you're not having real relationships with anyone else. If you don't know yourself, if you don't love yourself, then you don't have it to give. Oh, say that again. I, I, I love that point. Say that again. If you don't love yourself and you don't have real connection with yourself, then you don't have it to give to anyone else. No matter how much you love them, because you're not letting them in. You're not letting them see you. You're not letting that connection go both ways. No matter how much you love your partner or your children or God or anything else in our life, if we aren't first connected internally, then we don't have real connection outside because you're either hiding from yourself or sacrificing things that aren't real or trying to hide, stop other people from seeing you. And so you're not really connected. So I've got two questions outside of this one. So I guess I really have three. (laughs) I'm sure the listeners who've made it to this point of the episode are like, how do I get in touch with her? I've got all the questions. (laughs) How, how can people connect with you? Uh, so my website is brookheim.com. It's my first and last name, B-R-O-O-K-E-H-E-Y-M.com. You can go there and reach out to me through the website. Um, I'm Brookheim on pretty much every social, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, or my email address is brook at brookheim.com. I'm pretty available any way you want to get to me. <laughs> Beautiful. So the final two questions. The first one is, what dream are you most focused on catching next? Mm. The dreams that I'm focused on right now is publishing the books that I have in, in process right now. I have a couple of books. One is just on my story and what my life was. And then the other is the program that I use for people and how the stories of my life helped me develop that, the, the program itself and how other people can start implementing things in their life. So those, those two things are really a focus right now to get done and out to people. And then just getting this information out to more people, right? Like I want, there is nothing that I teach that I feel like is my own. I feel like I have been given many resources. There's so many books like the book Come As You Are and Deviate by Bolato and the transactional analysis, which is the psychological system that all of the things that I use were based off of, of living as the most whole adult version of yourself that you can instead of living in fear or aggression. And I don't feel like an ownership over any of it. I feel very gifted. I feel very honored to have been put in a position to bring all these pieces together in the way that I have. And I just want to get it out to people and have them live healthier lives and happier lives and real connected lives. So our, our retreats are, the next retreat is in, the big one is in Cancun in February. We've got a lot planned up for this coming year, including a trip to Antarctica, which I'm so geeking out over. I'm so excited. But uh, there's a lot coming up and I just, 
I want to see people understand that sex is not a four letter word, that everything about our bodies was meant for us. (laughs) It is not shameful to understand and know and love your body. It is not shameful to explore what is good for you so that you can be more connected to your partner. It is not shameful to have beauty and acceptance and love around creation because that's why we have it. So that monologue was beautiful. I'm going to give you opportunity to add to it. What's the one thing you want the listeners to take away from this episode? If it feels hard and if it feels scary, then you need to tell yourself, thank you. Because that is your mind's way of trying to keep you safe. And when you are ready on your own time, you can have beautiful relationships, like really, really beautiful relationships. And it all starts with yourself. If you have problems with your marriage, if you have problems with your kids, if you're having problems with finances or business, it genuinely all starts inside of you. And it's much easier than you could possibly imagine. And it is filled with lots of hardships and struggles. But if you are ready, find someone to take you through it. Because every coach needs a coach. Like I said, I still have my mentor. I always will. I see him regularly. It doesn't matter how much I learn. I need someone to call me on my bullshit. (laughs) Because our brains are very, very, very smart. And even when you think you're getting around your fear, it's going to convince you that you are by lying to you. So have someone who can help you see it and get ready for a life full of really transformative love. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Ladies and gentlemen, Brooke Heim, to the listeners, your dreams should be real. We'll talk soon. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. Until the next time, remember that your dreams should be real.